We are studying the book of Jonah and specifically trying to make application to the book of Jonah. Started this kind of this trend last year, and I, I think I'm going to continue with it because I think it really works well. And that is whatever I am using in the Doodle Bible School, the first segment of our Lord's Day Live, uh, I take that same chapter out of the Bible and then I make a sermon to help us to make application from that same chapter. And we're into chapter 3 in the book of Jonah. Let's just throw these chapters up here. Now, first of all, we've got to do the questions. My bad. There you go. Am I, am I in the way? I'm not. All right. Take a screenshot of that. Those are the questions we hope to cover. Got it? All right. Here we go. What I was talking about a minute ago. All right. There's four chapters to the book of Jonah. Jonah runs from God. Jonah runs to God. Jonah runs with God. That's where we're at today. And Jonah runs ahead of God. We'll be there next time. So we're into Jonah chapter 3. Notice that the little icon, the cloud icon, that's supposed to represent God each time. And the marshmallow man, that's basically Jonah. Well, in chapter 3, he and God are going together. Okay, So Jonah runs with God. It's the only chapter of the book of Jonah that actually shows Jonah in the, the, the posture that he's supposed to have. And that is to walk with God. Don't be behind him and don't get ahead of him. Walk with God. All right. And so in chapter three, we're going to see some things that I think will change your life because we're going to make some applications. But these applications are going to be similar to last time. In fact, you're going to say to yourself, Sonny, all four of these points were presented last time, weren't they? And I'm going to say, yes, they were. And the reason it's important for you to see that is because in chapter two, Jonah goes through a rather difficult process of repentance. In chapter three, he asked that that same journey be taken by the people. Now, I'm not sure that Jonah really had his heart into this. Uh, I call him the reluctant preacher because uh, he's got a crazy short sermon. Probably don't have the whole thing listed here, but he, if that's the sermon, it's not much. And on top of that, you're going to see in chapter 4 that he didn't want them to repent in the first place. But regardless of all of that, the message from God is, here's what I need from you people. I need true repentance. And you're going to, again, like I said, I, I, I get it. It's the same four statements as we as we had last time, but it's important for us to see this by way of repetition so that you and I will be able to have true repentance in our heart. I just got done telling the kids during Doodle Bible School, as we were dealing with this same chapter, that it's very important that we not only say we're sorry, but that we actually are sorry. And that's the thing that I think so often happens within the church Sometimes we have these moments, these surges of sorrow that don't last. And it's not really true repentance because we're not really changing. Let me march you through these four again, and I think you'll be able to pick up on it. True repentance is number one. True repentance is going to begin with a level of inspiration. You're going to have something that inspires you to come to it. Your heart pulls inside of you. You see a sight. You hear a sermon, whatever. You read a passage, and you say, oh, I need to do better. Notice what happens. <clears throat> Jonah is going to begin his journey through the city. And here's his sermon as far as we have recorded. We don't have any. So if this is all it is, it's the shortest sermon in history. Probably there was more to it. But his sermon, according to what's recorded, is yet 40 days and then it shall be overthrown. You guys are in trouble. You got 40 days and God's going to whoop up on you. And I kind of have to believe, knowing what I know about chapter 4, that he said this with somewhat of a smirk. He probably said that I can't wait to see it. But nevertheless, <clears throat> shorter sermon in history is going to have some major results. But number one, we've got to remember that true repentance is going to come from something that 
is inspirational. It hits you. Here we are on top of uh, New Year's Day, and uh, some of us are making New Year's resolutions. Excellent opportunity for you to recognize that you need to do better, do something better. Okay, And so <clears throat> there's this level of inspiration that comes his way, or comes their way, via the very short sermon of Jonah. So true repentance is going to be, number one, there's going to be a level of inspiration. Something draws you to this need to change. Number two, true repentance is going to involve isolation. Now, when I say isolation, I'm not necessarily saying that you've got to go off and sit in the corner by yourself or go off on some road trip where you're out in the wilderness for 40 days like Jesus. It might be that, but it, not, not necessarily. Notice the isolation of, of verse 6 having to do with the king. The word reached the king. What's the word? This short sermon of Jonah up here. And he gets it, and he says, and so he, he makes a change. He says, oh, dear. And he arose from his throne. He removes his royal robes. He covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits in a pile of ashes, all of which is representative. This idea of sitting in a pile of ashes covered in sackcloth is representative of, of a moment of isolation. It's not just a moment of I'm sorry, so I'm going to take off all of my finery, and I'm going to put on a sackcloth, and I'm going to sit in ashes. It's not just that. It is also... I personally need to go isolate myself from that which was a comfort zone in the past. So he goes and he sits in a, a pile of ashes. If you're going to have true resolution in your life, if you're going to have true repentance in your life, it's not just going to be a moment of inspiration. <clears throat> it's also going to be a moment of great isolation. That you're going to have introspect. You're going to look inside. You're going to feel very much alone. Because this is me. I have been in my prayer time recently. When I pray, I ask God to forgive me for causing the cross. That's my line. Please forgive me for causing the cross. And in my prayer time, I immediately want to say, and everybody else. Or I want to include the world. Please forgive us for what we did to cause the cross. But I, I try to keep myself from saying that because even though that's true, there's many other people that, that participated as well. The point for Sonny is Sonny was guilty. Sonny is the one who's got a problem. If there hadn't been anybody on the planet but Sonny Childs, God would have still sent his son to die for me. I'm confident of that. And so I need to take personal responsibility. But in that, do you see the isolation of that? Until repentance reaches a level where you personally feel the guilt not because everybody else participated. That, that waters it down. Scrap that idea. I am guilty personally. Me. you got to go there. And notice that it even reaches the level of the king. He says, I am guilty. So it's not just inspiration and not just isolation, but it's also desperation. The king's going to make a proclamation. He's going to basically say to all of his people, we're going to fast. And uh, we're not us, we're going to make sure our animals fast as well. But he says, we're going to go into this period of fasting for the purpose of maybe God will turn and relent and he'll turn from his fierce anger so that we'll not perish. The third is there's got to be a moment of desperation. When repentance is something that just kind of it's a flash in the bucket and it's gone again. You don't have that moment of desperation that carries you into a true condition of repentance, then it's not repentance at all, really. It's certainly not lasting repentance. I use this illustration quite often in my sermons, etc., about something that you have done without question. 
somebody dies, <clears throat> you go to the funeral home for the visitation, you're standing in that long line, it's finally your turn, you walk up to the, can the casket, and there they are. They're all laid out in front of you. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, just last month I had a conversation with this guy. And now he's he's there. He, he's not looking at me. He's dead. He, he can't move. It's a lifeless body, etc. And you're convicted. And for all of us, in moments like that, we've had this thought of desperation. That is going to be me one day. But you know what we do with that thought? Almost always. Because the next thing you do is you move from the casket to shaking the hand of the preacher, who just said a bunch of fancy words about the fellow, remember? And, you say, and, and immediately that desperation's gone. And once you shake his hand, you're thinking to yourself, where are we going to go for lunch? And the desperation is gone. And true repentance rarely happens. Because even though we were inspired, had a moment of isolation, that's going to be me one day, personal application, the desperation, it just kind of evaporates. And we, know, we don't make the true application that we need to. That's why in the scriptures you often find individuals who go into a repentance mode. These are individuals who actually go into a lengthy period of time of, of isolation perhaps or of mourning or whatever it is because they are trying to make sure that they embrace the desperate condition of their condition. And then number four, just as we saw last time, true repentance also brings about emancipation. Verse 10 is so powerful, and I'd like all my Calvinistic friends to make sure that they wrap themselves around verse 10. Calvinism takes a very perverted view of predestination. And in their perverted view of predestination, where everything has been predetermined, they eliminate free will and make themselves into a puppet. But if you'll notice in verse 10, and by the way, this is not the only place this happened in the Scripture. Many other instances I could point to as well. But notice verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. You know what the word relented means? God relented. Some translations in Scripture actually talk about God repenting. Repenting is when you turn around. You make a U-turn. You, you, you go a different direction. Repentance doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with sin. It can just simply mean you're going to do something different than what you intended to do or the direction that you were taking. At this particular point up here, God's direction is, I'm going to destroy this and this city. But notice that he relents from that of the disaster that he said, that he had said. He said he's going to do it. He relents from that, and he did not do it. Is it possible for God to change his mind? Is it possible for God to make a, diff a different decision than what he says he's going to do based upon our response to what he says he's going to do? God says he's going to send you to hell because you are a sinner. Is that a done deal? Is there nothing you can do to impact that? Calvinism would say it's a done deal. There's nothing you can do to impact it. And so basically, there is no security in, your, in your, your spiritual condition. I've never met a Calvinist yet who didn't think they were saved. And yet they couldn't prove it. Because to begin to prove it is to suggest that you have some impact over it or in it. Notice what this did. The pagans of Nineveh, who Jonah wanted to be slaughtered, he didn't like them because they were a cruel people. The pagans of Nineveh caught God's attention because of their change of heart to the extent that God says, 
I'm not going to do what I said I would do. Can you change the mind of God? Do you have any level of impact upon your own salvation? Absolutely. Can you save yourself? Absolutely not. But you can reach out to the Savior. One of the most nonsensical things I ever heard a Calvinist say is that because we are slaves to sin, we have no free will. What kind of ridiculous... Even a slave has the ability to wish for something different. Even a slave has the ability to have free will. That slave may not be free in any other way, but a slave, while being beaten by his master to do the work out in the field, whatever it may be, even in that condition, he can wish for something better. And he can acknowledge a Savior, should a Savior come by, that would save him from that condition. Just because you're a slave to something doesn't mean you don't have any free will. The Ninevites had and made the free will decision to repent. From the top down, from the king down, they repented. And guess how God responded to that? He changed his decision. He said he's going he's gonna to destroy him. But God changed his decision based upon the hearts of these people. That's true repentance, friends. And so if we want to have the same impact upon the heart of God, we've got to understand the inspiration, isolation, desperation, and emancipation that can come from true repentance. Not just going through the motions, not just spouting words in the air, but actually having a change of life because we've experienced true repentance. All right, here are the five questions that uh, I put before you. Number five, I think, is an important one, especially the last part here. Did God change his decision about destroying Nineveh? I mean, read that. I mean, the answer is pretty clear. But then add this to it. Can our actions change God's decisions? And if you can come to the right conclusion with regards to our actions based upon what happened to the folks in Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, then you'll understand that Calvinism is a damnable doctrine, and you need to run from it. Here are the questions that you'll have on your final test if you're part of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies.